You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked, and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded, and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin, after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest, and the priest shall look, and if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. When a man is afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. And if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin, so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look. And if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It is all turned white, and he is clean. But when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. And the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him unclean. Raw flesh is unclean, for it is a leprous disease. But if the raw flesh recovers and turns white again, Then he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall examine him, and if the disease has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce the diseased person clean. He is clean. If there is in the skin of one's body a boil, and it heals, and in the place of the boil there comes a white swelling or a reddish white spot, then it shall be shown to the priest, and the priest shall look, and if it appears deeper than the skin, and its hair has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease that has broken out in the boil. But if the priest examines it, and there is no white hair in it, and it is not deeper than the skin, but has faded, then the priest shall shut him up seven days. 
And if it spreads in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread, it is the scar of the boil, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. Or when the body has a burn on its skin, and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a spot, reddish white or white, the priest shall examine it. And if the hair in the spot has turned white and it appears deeper than the skin, then it is a leprous disease. It has broken out in the burn, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease. But if the priest examines it, and there is no white hair in the spot, and it is no deeper than the skin, but has faded, the priest shall shut him up seven days, and the priest shall examine him the seventh day. If it is spreading in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease. But if the spot remains in one place, and does not spread in the skin, but has faded, it is a swelling from the burn, and the priest shall pronounce him clean, for it is the scar of the burn. When a man or a woman has a disease on the head or the beard, the priest shall examine the disease, and if it appears deeper than the skin, and the hair in it is yellow and thin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an itch, a leprous disease of the head or the beard. And if the priest examines the itching disease, and it appears no deeper than the skin, and there is no black hair in it, then the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the disease. If the itch has not spread, and there is in it no yellow hair, and the itch appears to be no deeper than the skin, then he shall shave himself. But the itch he shall not shave, and the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for another seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the itch, and if the itch has not spread in the skin, and it appears to be no deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the itch spreads in the skin after his cleansing, then the priest shall examine him. And if the itch has spread in the skin, the priest need not seek for the yellow hair. He is clean. But if in his eyes the itch is unchanged and black hair has grown in it, the itch is healed and he is clean and the priest shall pronounce him clean. When a man or a woman has spots on the skin of the body, white spots, the priest shall look, and if the spots on the skin of the body are of a dull white, it is leucoderma that has broken out in the skin. He is clean. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. He is clean. And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness of the forehead. He is clean. But if there is on the bald head or the bald forehead, a reddish-white diseased area, it is a leprous disease breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. Then the priest shall examine him, and if the diseased swelling is reddish-white on his bald head or on his bald forehead, like the appearance of leprous disease in the skin of the body, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head." The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! 
unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. When there is a case of leprous disease in a garment, whether a woolen or a linen garment, in warp or woof of linen or wool, or in a skin or in anything made of skin, if the disease is greenish or reddish in the garment or in the skin or in the warp or the woof or in any article made of skin, it is a case of leprous disease and it shall be shown to the priest." And the priest shall examine the disease and shut up that which has the disease for seven days. Then he shall examine the disease on the seventh day. If the disease has spread in the garment, in the warp or the woof or in the skin, whatever be the use of the skin, the disease is a persistent leprous disease. It is unclean and he shall burn the garment or the warp or the woof, the wool or the linen or any article made of skin that is diseased, for it is a persistent leprous disease, it shall be burned in the fire. And if the priest examines, and if the disease has not spread in the garment, in the warp or the woof, or in any article made of skin, then the priest shall command that they wash the thing in which is the disease, and he shall shut it up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine the diseased thing after it has been washed. And if the appearance of the diseased area has not changed, though the disease has not spread, it is unclean. You shall burn it in the fire, whether the rot is on the back or on the front. But if the priest examines, and if the diseased area has faded after it has been washed, he shall tear it out of the garment, or the skin, or the warp, or the woof. Then if it appears again in the garment, in the warp, or the woof, or in any article made of skin, it is spreading. You shall burn with fire whatever has the disease, but the garment, or the warp, or the woof, or any article made of skin from which the disease departs when you have washed it, shall then be washed a second time and be clean. This is the law for a case of leprous disease in a garment of wool or linen, either in the warp or the woof, or in any article made of skin, to determine whether it is clean or unclean. When you attend a funeral, it is sad to think that sooner or later those you love will do the same for you. And you may have thought it tragic, not to mention other adjectives, to think of all the weeping they will do. But don't you worry, no more ashes, no more sackcloth, and an armband made of black cloth will someday never more adorn a sleeve. For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to grieve. And we will all go together when we go. What a comforting fact that is to know. Universal bereavement, an inspiring achievement. Yes, we all will go together when we go. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for another episode of this podcast. In fact, the 603rd episode of this podcast. That was a little bit of Tom Lehrer in his song, his very upbeat, chipper song, 
about uh, <laughs> nuclear holocaust, uh, mutually assured destruction, written and originally performed in the heyday of the Cold War. We will all go together when we go is the title of that song. If you want to listen to the full thing, I will put a link in the description for this podcast episode. It is funny. He's got a lot of funny songs. And uh, one of them is on the periodic table. If you find yourself in a chemistry class someday and you're trying to memorize the periodic table, he's got a jingle for you and you would do well to look it up. There's another song by him that my kids find very funny which is called Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. It is a, again, upbeat, chipper song about springtime activities with your beloved going and poisoning pigeons in the park. Of course, the tone of the song, the upbeat, chipper quality of the song doesn't match at all the dark theme, either in this song, We Will All Go Together When We Go, or in Poisoning Pigeons in the Park, or in other songs by him. And that's the point. That's part of the comedy of it is that these things are so out of step with each other that it's absurd, right? It, it takes the whole thing to an absurdity. And so it's comedy, right? It's comedy. It's not serious. You're not supposed to take it seriously. But I play it for you because in this episode, we are going to be talking through a response I got to the short review I wrote for the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by Alex Epstein. I have a reply from someone. I seem to have struck a nerve with my glowing review of Alex Epstein's book. And so I want to talk through that because it was a fairly lengthy. I think the reply to my review might have been as long or longer than uh, the actual review. The person who replied to my review wrote a review of my review <laughs> of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And I want to talk through it. I want to respond to some of the claims that are made here so that it is not hypothetical, so that you don't think that I'm just straw manning the position of people who are on the other side of this debate. I want to actually respond to a real person. I trust this is a real person and not AI-generated um, content to distract me. It seems as though it's a real person from Ontario, Canada. But we'll save that, and we have some other things to get to in the meantime. For instance, let's talk just a little bit about Leviticus chapter 13, which I read at the top of this episode. And how does this thing, how does this subject of leprosy and lepers, and what do you do with clean and unclean skin diseases or skin conditions, uh, how does that fit into us talking about the planet and talking about environmentalism versus conservationism versus economic development and human flourishing and the end of the world as we know it. How does that relate? Well, in a couple of ways, I think. One, as I said in my review of Alex Epstein's The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, as I said in the podcast episode, we seem to have on the left among the radical environmentalists these categories of clean and unclean energy actually taking on a kind of spiritual significance for the radical environmentalists. They don't just have a physical component or a physical classification to these people when it comes to their zeal for seeing the kind of change that they want to have enacted on a global scale. When it comes to the emotional content of their calls to action, you can't just say this is some calm discussion about 
a physical matter, like we're debating back and forth in a purely physical way, there's a metaphysical component here. There's a spiritual component. I think there is some spiritual warfare going on here because there's a conflict of visions. There's a conflict of worldviews. There's a conflict of cosmology and of theology, really more to the point. There are very serious theological ramifications to embracing all of what the environmentalist push has to say about man's relationship with the planet or with the cosmos. It really gets down to how did we get here? Who are we? How did we get here? What are we doing here? What are we supposed to be about? Where are we going? How do we know? Those are questions that are metaphysical. When you get into origins, those are metaphysical questions. And even for the agnostic, you are making a statement to say, I'm not convinced by the evidence. I'm not convinced by, let's say, special revelation. I do not believe that the Bible is God's inspired inerrant word, a true account of his creative work. In Genesis, I don't believe that that's true. Or if you prefer to take a more literary approach or interpretation of Genesis, for instance, you say, I believe that it's true, but only in a figurative sense. I don't believe this can be actually precisely true at face value. We shouldn't take it at face value. This is only true in a symbolic sense or in a metaphorical sense. But then that leaves us on our own to figure out how old is the earth? How did mankind get here? Is mankind a special creation by God? Is that part true? Which parts are true and which parts are not true? And how do we know? And what becomes the litmus test? All of those are bound up in this discussion of environmentalism and the moral case for fossil fuels and the push for clean energy as it's called by the left. But then maybe perhaps possibly to gain some perspective and to bring our emotional volatility into a place of uh, more stable equilibrium, <laughs> maybe we talk a little bit about clean and unclean skin conditions for a minute because there's less hype about that. Maybe that will help us to bring this thing back down from a boil and into a state where we can actually talk with each other. We can actually have a productive conversation. That's what I would propose. And it just so happens, right? It just so happens that I'm reading through a chapter at a time at the top of every podcast episode. This is the one we came to for this episode. Leviticus chapter 13 follows, if you can believe it, Leviticus chapter 12. And Leviticus 13 is as long as Leviticus 12 is short. These are not equally sized uh, chapters. Leviticus 12, you'll remember, has to do with a woman's purification rituals after having given birth to a child. But this chapter has to do with determining whether somebody has a leprous skin disease or whether they just have uh, you know, a, a passing uh, condition, some swelling from a burn, for instance. You know, is this something that we need to put them outside the camp and really quarantine? That's the word that we would use in this day. Is this a condition where we need to quarantine this person and burn anything in the way of clothing or other articles that might be contaminated? Is that the kind of condition that this is? Or is this just part of it? This is just a, a simple injury and they'll be fine. It's healing and it's not contagious. That's another word that we would use. It's not being used here. 
But that is what's in the mix. That's why somebody would be put outside the camp and quarantined when they have a leprous skin condition is you don't want it spreading to other people. You don't want other people contracting this. But then that is to say, I do believe we have a spiritual significance and also a physical practicality all bound up, all in the mix together in passages like this. I think there is a spiritual significance to the leprosy. I think it can have a figurative implication and a foreshadowing uh, kind of uh, quality to it that speaks to other things that are talked about later that are harder to understand, that are more abstract. But then also, too, I think there's an intensely practical side to this where you don't want everybody getting leprosy because this guy who's got leprosy is just mixing it up with everybody else like it's no big deal. Hygiene is important. Cleanliness is next to godliness, really, when it comes to the Old Testament law. Quite quite literally, <laughs> clean and unclean are categories that are very much adjacent to godly and ungodly. But consider, if you will, the criteria. And if it's this, then it's that. And then if you see this, then you know to classify it as such and such. This is a very thorough and very systematic approach to determining whether somebody should be quarantined. And I think it's a precursor of the scientific method. Now, if you read Will Durant, for instance, his books, his historical works and his, uh, you know, epic, epic volumes on world history, on human history, you'll take what is, I would say, the prevailing notion, the prevailing view of the Bible that the Old Testament and New Testament really were, in some sense, plagiarizing more advanced civilizations, more developed empires and cultures that were adjacent at the time that they were written. And I reject that. I don't believe that that's correct. I think what you have actually is these things being true objectively, and you have other peoples that are not God's people who worship other gods, picking up on the practicality of these things, because this is just how it has to be. You, you can't have something that's totally and utterly and absolutely evil and false, or else it would destroy itself, as Augustine says. Evil is just a privation of the good. And so you can find in corrupt empires, corrupt cultures that worship other gods, that worship demons, and don't worship Yahweh God, the Most High God. You can find good, but that's why we call it corrupt is because it's a diminution. It's a privation of the good. There's a decrease of the good insofar as things that God has said have been rejected. And then gradually over time, you have more and more entropy. You have more and more decay of what was originally put in order by God himself. Well, that is true in this case, but then you have in God giving instructions to the people what to do when you've got various skin conditions. You have God instructing his people how to restore order and to shore things up. Think uh, the Netherlands with rising sea levels threatening to submerge uh, you know, human habitation, cities, farms that are built on the coast. And then what do they do? They build dikes. They construct 
earthworks and other works to keep the water out and to keep these uh, structures and these farms and these human developments from being destroyed or from being unusable. So also, I think you have that here in the instructions for leprosy. There's a kind of formula for sandbagging when to and when not to quarantine somebody is a kind of sandbagging against the effects of sin in this particular area. But then fast forward, and, and don't lose sight of this, we're reading through quite a lot of Old Testament here, because at a chapter at a time, in the order that the canon is arranged in your typical English Bible, that's how we're going to go through these passages. Don't lose sight of, when you fast forward to the New Testament, you have passages like Luke 5, 12 through 16, with Jesus cleansing a leper while he was in one of the cities, it reads, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Verse 13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Verse 14, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. So here you have Jesus affirming and supporting, not contradicting the law of Moses. That's important. It's an important note. Verse 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray, which is to say, you don't have to demand of Jesus that he would heal you. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's what the leper says. If you will, you can make me clean. That's not an order. That's not this leper bossing Jesus around. It's just an expression of faith. It's a very simple expression of faith. I believe you can. I believe you can do this if you want to. And Jesus says, I do want to be clean. And it's just like that. Just like that, he's healed. And then you have crowds wanting to hear what Jesus has to say and be healed of their infirmities too. So they see what has happened to this guy and they say, man, that's excellent. That's fantastic. Nobody heals lepers. And maybe even if they're not lepers, they have their own conditions. They have their own illnesses and maladies and infirmities, maybe even demon possession, things that they were born with, handicaps and developmental disabilities coming to Jesus and being healed because that's something Jesus can do. Now, (laughs) on this point, um, I'm going to go an odd direction as if we haven't been already to this point. You might even say I'm going to go a strange direction because Friday night, my wife, Lauren, went to a women's retreat in Estes Park, Colorado, put on by our network of churches in this area, six different churches, as I understand it, sent women to this conference, this retreat in the mountains, beautiful Estes Park, and it was snowy and lovely and cool. And while mama was out of the house and it was just me and the eight kids home by ourselves, we watched Doctor Strange. We watched that movie, Doctor Strange. And they had never seen it to this point. I have held off on having my kids watch that movie because there's a lot that's in the mix there that is, I would say, concerning as to uh, the occult and witchcraft and magic and 
spiritual claims that are made, metaphysical claims that are made. It's not like Iron Man where, yeah, you do have some sin in the mix for sure. And you have some bad examples that are set here and there, but we're dealing in the material. We're dealing in the concrete. In Doctor Strange, we are dealing with magic. We're dealing with things that God expressly forbade us to be involved in. His people are not permitted to get all mixed up in magic and with spiritual forces. Angels and demons and such like that are not supposed to be the ones we go to for our requests and our petitions. We're supposed to be making our petitions known to God. In Christ Jesus, we can. We have no better intercessor than Christ himself. And so we ask God directly in prayer. And then what God will, he does. We say like the leper, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And then God does. And do we believe that he is capable of making clean what has been unclean objectively? But we watched this movie, right? We watched this movie. And if you're familiar, you know that the origin story for Dr. Stephen Strange is that he gets in an accident. He's a neurosurgeon. He gets in a terrible car accident. And then his hands are not suitable anymore for doing surgery. He can't do surgery like he did when he had very, very steady hands because they're not steady anymore. And this is just hugely destabilizing for him that he has built his whole identity around being this very accomplished, very capable, very intelligent surgeon. And now he's not that. And so what is he? And what's his life worth anyways? It's hugely destabilizing. Well, in a desperate plea, he travels to Kathmandu and seeks out these spiritual people he has heard were able to heal someone else. And it's a very similar kind of dynamic to what we see in Luke chapter 5. He goes and looks up somebody he had rejected and turned away as a patient when he was still a surgeon who had something that was just not curable. It wasn't something he was going to be able to do anything with, with science as he knew it. And this guy is supposedly 100% recovered and he wants to know, who did you go to? Tell me, I need help now. Who did you go to? And I'm going to go to them. And the answer he gets from this guy is that he went to Kathmandu and sought out these spiritual people. Kamartaj is where he goes to. And he seeks out these spiritual people who are able to teach him the mysteries of the universe up to and including how to be physically healed because as you find out, physical healing is downstream of spiritual healing. And there's a whole lot more that we could get into in the story of the movie Doctor Strange. It's Marvel superhero film, the comic book themes and all that. There's a whole lot more we could get into, which I don't want to get into in this episode because we're pressed for time. We've got a lot else to get to. But the point is, my big concern with those who reject Christianity as inherently unscientific and who then wean themselves off of the Christian morality and the Christian narrative, Christian cosmology, the Christian account of where we come from, why are we here, what are we supposed to be about, where are we going, what do we do with ourselves and the time that we have and the materials and the resources and the environment that we have from God. Those who reject all of that maybe for a time are, and, and when I say a time, I mean maybe a few generations, they are 
wholly secular and they think of themselves as only concerned with the physical, only only concerned with the material, at a certain point, they can't escape the fact that they have a soul. They have an immaterial part of themselves, which is also in need of attention, is also needed in, in need of help. Uh, so, you know, a show I'm watching here, I'm getting back into after years of not, is Frasier. You have Kelsey Grammer playing Frasier Crane, Dr. Frasier Crane. He and his brother, who is also a psychiatrist, Niles Crane, they talk with people through problems that they're having that are not just physical problems, but that at root are spiritual problems. That's what psychology is, for instance, is the study of the soul. But then they're approaching it not from the Christian prescription, not saying, well, here's what the Bible says, and here's what God's word says, and here's what God's prescribed, and here's the test that God has given us to determine whether your mode of living is clean or unclean, or the effects of your mode of living are clean or unclean. No, they're coming at it from an entirely practical, pragmatic standpoint. Well, go back to Dr. Strange for a moment. When he can't find a cure for the intensely practical problem of not being able to use his hands to be a surgeon anymore, when he can't find a scientific solution per se, He's willing to tap into magic and spiritual power, cosmic energy coming from where? Coming from whom? Well, consider his teacher. His teacher is this very mystical woman who is said to be at least centuries old. She's referred to as the Ancient One, the Sorcerer Supreme, played by Tilda Swinton. And she... As you find out, spoiler alert here, turn back now, all you who haven't seen the movie and don't want me to give it away for you. You find out she has prolonged her life. She has made herself so old and kept herself alive by tapping into the powers of Dormammu in this realm outside of space and time where he exists. He's the one they're trying to prevent from taking over the world, coming into this world and destroying it. He's a kind of Satan figure, but then he's also not really a Satan that we would recognize from Christianity because he exists outside of time and space with godlike powers. And so he's almost actually a caricature of God himself. This would be when you accept the narrative that God is the villain of human history. He's the one who's been keeping us back, holding us back, wanting to destroy us all. There's even some mix-up of his followers, these radical zealots like Caecilius, wanting to bring eternal life to the world. So there's a lot that's mixed in there where you have to ask yourself, is Dormammu actually how Satanists view God? Maybe, right? Maybe. Looks like it. There's some concerning elements there. But... Regardless, he's the villain of this story. He's the villain of Dr. Strange's story. And so then let's just, within the confines of this story, accept that when he's the bad guy and the ancient one is supposed to be the guide, the spiritual guide for Dr. Strange, not just to get his hands back to a healed state, but also to heal his heart and his mind as well, because they are also what needs healing She's tapping into the power of this 
supervillain, this archvillain, this devil character, she's tapping into that power even as she's telling her followers, you must not. And so what's that about? And my point here is coming back to the environmentalism question and everything that the left is really pushing is a package deal. It is a package deal. It's not just one off by itself and then the others, you know, who knows. But coming back to this problem of an environmentalist cosmology and theology and anthropology, what if you do have some pantheism and neo-paganism being mixed in here with doom and gloom predictions about the end of the world as we know it, if we don't stop using fossil fuels? Here I will reference Michael Knowles over at the Daily Wire. I like Michael Knowles. I enjoy listening to his program on a somewhat regular basis. I enjoy his political commentary. And he is a Roman Catholic, and so we would disagree on the finer points of theology because I'm a Protestant. But nevertheless, there's a lot of overlap, and I have far more in common with Michael Knowles than I do with the people on the left. The, The folks on the left, I am diametrically opposed to the people like Michael Knowles on the conservative side of things. I could have a equitable debate with about the finer points of theology and anthropology, but he posted to Facebook here just yesterday. We've got a dying population. We've got plummeting rates of marriage. We have a hookup culture that is so perverse. It's spurred a me too movement because that's how confused people are now about sex. Abortion is prevalent and women are being left high and dry. In what world is this good? And that's a good question to ask, but there is an answer. And the answer from the folks who say everything is just material, everything is naturalism, everything is scientific in a godless way, their answer would be, this is normal, this is natural for these things to happen. And actually, if you read Alex Epstein's book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, he will quote philosophers on the environmentalist side of things as saying that mankind is a cancer on the earth. So it's actually <clears throat> it's actually all for the better if we have a dying population because we are the leprosy on planet earth. We are the unclean thing, actually. It's not fossil fuels. It's we ourselves that are unclean. And then insofar as fossil fuels help to promote human flourishing, that's as bad a thing for the planet as if you had something that caused cancer to grow in an aggressive way. That's as bad as if we found out that you yourself had some terrible infectious disease and now it's spreading to other people because we didn't quarantine you. So the answer to the question, in what world is this good, is actually found on the left in their cosmology, in their metaphysical claims about where we come from, why are we here, where are we going, what are we supposed to be doing? There is actually an answer. We've got a dying population. Well, they would say, like Ebenezer Scrooge, the sooner the better. Let them die and therefore decrease the surplus population. And they would agree with Karl Marx. It's It's not for no reason that a lot of the radical environmentalists also tend to look favorably on more communistic solutions of wealth redistribution, 
redistributing population, for one thing, that's why they're for open borders, but also redistributing economic opportunity, political authority, et cetera, et cetera. That's why they're for redistributing the special honor that historically we have given to the institution of marriage. They want to redistribute that to same-sex couples as well. They want to redistribute the qualities that make up masculinity and femininity. That's why they're for transgenderism because what they're actually for is androgyny because then that is in the sexual space the fulfillment of this ideal of everybody being equal or you having a kind of equity. That's not a a kind of equity that the Christian would recognize, but in their cosmology, it makes sense. In their view of the universe and not just the physical universe, but the moral universe, the spiritual universe, this is actually good. And the hookup culture, well, it's just like the animals. The animals do that, right? The Me Too movement, well, yeah, okay. So what, right? If truth claims are, as Michel Foucault would say, just a will to power in their economy, well, then the Me Too movement is every bit as legitimate as the hookup culture that preceded it. And so why not? You know, it's interesting. In watching Frasier, again, I just finished up the last episode in season three in which, forgive me, small side trail here, but then we'll come back and it'll relate. I promise. Roz tries to set up Frasier with her beautiful former golf pro friend. And it's in the process of them having some chemistry and possibly going out on a date, going out on a date. It's in the process of going that direction as they're sitting at this coffee shop, talking back and forth having a charming discussion about his radio program and how she almost called in one time and how she's very, very competitive. And that's really her Achilles heel when it comes to personal relationships. It helped her excel as a pro golfer, but then in personal relationships, it it tends to not go so well. Well, in comes Bulldog, who has a sports program at the radio station that Frazier has his radio program at. In comes Bulldog and... Long story short, Bulldog ends up leaving with the girl and Frazier is just left there sitting, wondering what just happened, right? He can't compete in the sports arena. And there they go, the two sports aficionados, to play a competitive round of golf. And fast forward, there's a lot of hookup culture uh, that, that the plot revolves around in this episode between Bulldog and this former professional golfer character, beautiful woman, but they spend the weekend together and then she dumps him. He's in love with her. And it's usually just the opposite where he's the one using and then discarding women. But in this episode, he gets a taste of his own medicine and he doesn't like it. And how does he get out of the funk, which is threatening to derail his radio show? How he gets out of the funk is when Frazier Instead of talking to him like a psychiatrist, helping him work through his feelings, instead starts very aggressively talking to him like he were a jock, like he were another red-blooded American man who's saying, ah, you know, she just saved you the trouble of doing that to her and good riddance. Yeah, you're the better for it. And so what? You're just going to find some other girl, some other woman, some other women to 
do the same thing to, and yeah, you don't need her. She wasn't that good looking. Da 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 da. In the godless view of cosmology and anthropology, how we relate to one another and God and our environment, what's the difference? Who cares? Right? There's a there's a kind of nihilism that at first is apathetic to these questions, but at a certain point it has to turn the corner and look for meaning. Man's search for meaning by Viktor Frankl comes into play here. Man is looking for purpose and belonging. And that is what the left offers to people when it offers a comprehensive vision of what's wrong with the world and what to do about it. Why are we here? What should we do with the time that we have, the resources that we have? What the left is also offering to people in that comprehensive vision is purpose and belonging. And that's why people get sucked in. And that's why it's very difficult to convince them to revise their thinking about any of these particular issues, because it's not the particular issues that are at the root of our disagreement. It's something much, much deeper. It's something much more fundamental that has to do with the vision of the good life. And then these particular issues that we disagree about, they're offshoots of that more fundamental, more foundational disagreement. But I say that, and to the Christians in my audience, my family, my friends, others, who listen to all of this and they say, but Garrett, you know, this is, this is not the way to respond to that. We need to be loving and we need to be winsome. And aren't we supposed to just be kind, be gentle and respectful when we answer somebody who asks for a reason for the hope that lies within us? And I say, yes, absolutely. 100% totally. That's part of how we, for one, can be blameless and honorable and give honor to God and have peace ourselves, even if we are hated and called all kinds of ugly, awful, nasty things, called anti-science, for instance, ooh, racist, for instance, oh, misogynistic, oh, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 20 does bear mentioning and the folks who will say, maybe we should just leave it be and focus on our own private business. They will come to passages like 1 Corinthians 6. 1 through 20. And so I'll read it for you briefly. When one of you has a grievance against another, verse 1, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so how does that relate? How does that relate? Amen. Absolutely. Yes. It must, but how? There are a lot of Christians in America today who will say, 
the prescription here is we do not get into conflict either with those who are outside the church or in front of, in view of those who are outside of the church. We don't get into conflict because it reflects poorly on the testimony of the gospel, Christ's church, Christ himself. It is not a good testimony for us to have lawsuits and other such conflict before unbelievers. And I would say in a certain sense, you're right to go there on these macro level issues, but then it's a little bit more complicated than maybe it's being given credit for. For instance, when we see the saints will judge the world. So our cosmology as Christians explicitly holds that Christians will judge the world. Now there's a future that is not a present when Paul is writing this. We will judge the world speaks to, I think, the final judgment, speaks to the end days, but there's also him mentioning it in the present as if this is a relevant fact to how we think of disputes right now. So you're not supposed to take your dispute between brothers to non-believers, for instance. It would be better for you guys to just take the hit, you know, count it a sunk cost instead of wronging and defrauding each other even further and hurting the church and the testimony of the church and the gospel witness by going to unbelievers. But then it can't be that we remain mute or indifferent or ambivalent about the matters pertaining to this life. Because he says in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Well, I would say if that does not give us permission, nay, encouragement (laughs) to get into social questions, political questions, scientific questions, what would? Those are matters pertaining to this life. And it's not enough to say our citizenship is in heaven because actually our citizenship is in heaven, but then we're going to occupy this earth until Christ returns or calls us home. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And we are going to rule and reign with Christ as his image bearers in the new earth. So it's not just that we're going to sit on clouds playing harps. If God can be glorified in the building of the tabernacle by skilled workmen, skilled craftsmen, why can't God be forever glorified with in a new heavens and a new earth, mankind fulfilling the dominion mandate, as it were, filling the earth and subduing it? Why not? And if that's what we're supposed to get used to and get accustomed to and wrap our minds around, why would we wait until we die to get to it and to think it through and to keep it in mind? We're being asked here in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 20, to think it through. Now, he also gets into fleeing sexual immorality, which is of a piece here too. Very often you'll find that when sexual immorality increases, you also have idolatry that increases right alongside. These things go together very neatly. Having lots of sexual partners typically comes with the territory of having lots of gods, multiplying the gods that you worship or give reverence to. And this is why 
one man, one woman for life is the ideal because that is reflected in us having one God, worshiping one God. We being one people, worshiping one God. Now you can say, well, there's many. The many become one in the case of the church or in the Old Testament, we have Israel. God refers to his people as one, singular, she, Israel. But then there's Israel and there's Judah. And in the case of the church, you have lots of local churches. So it gets complicated, but then again, it doesn't because thou shalt have no other gods before me is still in effect, clearly. Otherwise, why does Paul say the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters is the next type of person listed. So you can't be an idolater. You can't worship other gods and expect to inherit the kingdom of God, most high, Yahweh, God. Moving on. How to talk to anyone, 92 Little Tricks for Big Success in Relationships, is a book I'm almost finished up with. I started it yesterday, and it is intensely practical, very pragmatic, and very much of a piece with the kind of advice and feedback that a Frazier would give. Not to say that there's no place for being practical and pragmatic. I'm not saying that because we do see practical, pragmatic advice and reasoning in the Bible. We see it in the prescription to put people who have a leprous skin condition outside the camp. For instance, there's a practical aspect to that. We see this in the wisdom literature, in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, for instance. We see practical wisdom. We see calls to attend to matters pertaining to this life. But I mention that I'm reading this book in passing. The subtitle is 92 Little Tricks for Big Success in Relationships. But again, I want to point out that our why is important. And also whether we're Christians or not is going to affect whether we leverage the little tips and tricks with regards to human psychology in an exploitative way, in a manipulative way, to use people and discard them, get what we want out of them, and then throw them away, move on, or whether we are going to be wise in our relationships and try to be successful in our communications. So I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking to myself about this question of environmentalism. And I'm thinking about something said by the author about how the French reply to a compliment. And she says, the French are very good at replying to compliments. Americans all too often reject compliments. We will say, oh no, this old thing, you know, a woman is complimented on her dress. Oh, that's a lovely dress you have on. Oh, this old thing. I only wear it when I don't care who's looking or how I look, Violet says in It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, this old thing? And as the author of How to Talk to Anyone points out, rejecting compliments can actually be insulting towards the person who gave the compliment because you're questioning their integrity, their honesty, perhaps saying that they don't mean it or you're questioning their taste, they say that's a beautiful dress you have on, and you say, no, it's not. In some sense, you're saying they don't have very good taste in dresses. They don't have very good judgment where that's concerned. But how do the French reply when given a compliment? There's a French phrase that translates into English, you are very kind. You are very kind. So 
maybe you don't like that attention being put on you when somebody compliments you, instead of trying to counteract that attention being put on you, return the compliment. Tu es très gentil. You are very kind. That's what we should say. And also too, and this relates, right? This relates when it comes to what God says about us being made in his image, in his word, and the cosmology that's delivered to us in his word. Who would know better than God? Are we being very humble if we say, oh, me? No, surely not. Or are we insulting, questioning the integrity, the trustworthiness, the goodness of God to reject the rather high place we as human beings occupy in the created order when God says he made us in the beginning, male and female, in his image. He made us and told us, told our ancestors, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Are we being humble if we reject that and we say, no, 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 we're a cancer on the planet? No, that's not humility. It's actually a great deal of hubris because we are then saying we know better than God, which we don't. How could we? Moving on. Speaking of healthcare, Leviticus has to do with questions of leprosy, leprous skin conditions, the priest evaluating and assessing, being told how to do a simple diagnostic. Holy Rosary Healthcare in Miles City receives $6 million grant for Cancer Center, Intermountain Health reporting. Holy Rosary Healthcare in Miles City is part of Intermountain Health, and they have received this grant from Helmsley Charitable Trust to support the construction of a new comprehensive cancer center serving eastern Montana. A 12,000-square-foot center will provide radiation, medical, and surgical oncology services. The project will eliminate distance and access barriers to care for the people living in the region. And I can speak to the usefulness of this, the importance of this, the value of this as someone whose two sons were born at this hospital in Miles City, Montana. My brother actually was born at a hospital, I think run by Holy Rosary Healthcare, St. Vincent's Hospital in Miles City, Montana. My younger brother was born there. My wife was treated and saw doctors and physicians and the like during pregnancy and for other conditions by this hospital network in Miles City. And even for us coming from Sydney to Mile City was a two-hour-plus drive one way. So it was quite a, quite a drive, but the next best was to go all the way to Billings, which is an eight-hour drive one way from Sydney, Montana. So having a cancer treatment center right there in Mile City, it's a big deal. It's, this is very important. This is a big help to the people of eastern Montana who do not have good access to quality healthcare facilities as a rule. Moving on, Biden signs executive order to make entire government focus on environmental justice. Ben Zeisloft reports for the Daily Wire. Just Friday, President Joe Biden issued an executive order on Friday compelling the entire federal government to focus on addressing, quote, environmental justice, end quote. The White House contended in a statement that racial discrimination created a situation in which minority groups are more likely to suffer from various environmental harms and are purportedly more susceptible to the impact of climate change. The executive order will deepen the whole of government approach to climate, which Biden has frequently touted. And I'm going to go ahead and play cut one here from Not the Bees post on this. 
just yesterday, Daniel Plainview, not his real name. Daniel Plainview is a character from the film There Will Be Blood, starring Daniel Day-Lewis. But Daniel Plainview posts Biden signs green executive order under which, quote, environmental justice will become the responsibility of every single federal agency, end quote. Here's cut one. Take a listen, and then I'll have some thoughts for you. Under this order, environmental justice will become the responsibility of every single federal agency. I mean, every single federal agency. And there you have it. Short and sweet, but in his own words. So you don't think that this is me or the Daily Wire or not the bee being hyperbolic. Every single federal agency is being directed to promote so-called environmental justice. Going back to the Daily Wire write-up, Zeisloft points out that Biden nixed expansions to the Keystone XL pipeline when he entered office and slowed federal oil lease approvals over the past two years. He meanwhile returned the United States to the Paris Climate Agreement, an international treaty that calls for reducing worldwide emissions by half ahead of 2030 as he promotes the broader transition toward renewable energy. Despite the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law, some Democratic lawmakers recently renewed their calls for more intense climate legislation. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York, and Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts, this week reintroduced the Green New Deal, a resolution which claims to solve climate change by drastically reshaping the American economy. The text of the resolution calls for the United States to meet all power demand through renewable and zero emission sources, upgrade all existing buildings to achieve maximum energy efficiency, and overhaul the transportation system to remove carbon emissions to the greatest extent possible within the next decade. To say that this is revolutionary is an understatement. To say that this is overreach is not sufficient. You can't get any more revolutionary than this Green New Deal, so-called. I don't think it's the Green New Deal. I think it's the old red deal, by the way. But this is a seizure of all private property, essentially, or an acting as though all private property is government property. This is totalitarian, actually, in effect. And a lot of people are already suffering as a result of this push by the Democrats, by the left. A lot more people will suffer unless we can put a stop to it. And it won't accomplish what it is stating its goal is. That's not actually what's driving it to save the planet. That is not actually what this is. It's not to save the planet for us and our descendants, our children and our grandchildren. This is to save the planet from us and our children and our grandchildren, because we are actually the ones who are seen as the problem. Environmental impact, as Alex Epstein points out in his book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, environmental impact is the problem. Even if it's a good and positive impact, any impact whatsoever by human beings is regarded as evil, as bad, as a corruption. And so the goal is not just to get rid of fossil fuels. The goal is for human beings to have zero impact on the environment whatsoever, because all impact is regarded as negative, as bad. But that's a metaphysical position. That's a cosmological position that's being taken. That's not a scientific position to take. Moving on. On a happier note, or a more fun note, or again, even just any other note, 
Very rare 1,000-year-old Viking coins unearthed by a young girl who was metal detecting in a Danish cornfield. April 21st, CBS News reports nearly 300 silver coins believed to be more than 1,000 years old have been discovered near a Viking fortress site in northwestern Denmark, a museum said Thursday. The rare trove, lying in two spots not far apart, was unearthed by a young girl who was metal detecting in a cornfield last autumn. Quote, a hoard like this is very rare, end quote, Lars Christian Norbach, director of the North Jutland Museum, where the artifacts will go on display, told AFP. The trove includes Danish, Arab, and Germanic coins, as well as pieces of jewelry originating from Scotland or Ireland, according to archaeologists. Norbach said the finds were from the same period as the fort built by King Harald Bluetooth and would offer more insight into the history of the Vikings. By the way, Bluetooth, the wireless technology, gets its name from King Harald Bluetooth. Go look it up. It's totally true. Fun fact, just so you know. I bring this up in conjunction with the rest of what we're talking about for a couple of reasons. One, because we should note that a thousand years ago, the Vikings were operating in full tilt in Europe and raiding monasteries and carrying away innocent men, women, and children to be slaves or to be human sacrifices to the gods of the Norse. People were being butchered, tortured, roasted alive, raped, pillaged, plundered, enslaved by the Vikings, and they were very good at it. They were very, very good at it. They were very scientific about it, actually. They had some very clever techniques for striking where least expected, much faster than a response of defense could be mounted, typically, and causing a lot of damage, a lot of destruction. They were heavy hitters. And also, they <laughs> they didn't last. They didn't last. I mean, we still have people who are enamored by the Viking religion, to be sure, right? To be sure. Uh, you could say that the Nazis, for instance, were an attempt at a resurgence of Viking religion. And they tried to infuse these Germanic ideas, Viking spirituality, into Christianity, into the German church. And it didn't go so well. It didn't succeed. But their view of the world, their view of cosmology, could be likened to, I hope will be likened to, what the environmentalists are operating from in the long run. And what I mean is, a thousand years from now, provided that the world stands and the Lord tarries, the second coming uh, holds off in the Lord's good timing, provided the world stands for a thousand years more, I think in the long run, we will find that the radicals, the Greta Thunbergs of today and the Klaus Schwabs of today will be looked back on very much like the Vikings are today. A thousand years from now, our descendants will look back on the Greta Thunbergs and the Klaus Schwabs like we today look back on the Vikings. We'll say, oh, wow, they were scary, scary folks, unreasonable, and they caused a lot of damage. But then they also couldn't keep it up. They couldn't endure. They could not sustain that level of energy. And eventually they had to give way. They had to either die out and kill each other off or convert to Christianity. And they were conquered in a spiritual sense. 
by Christianity. Now, Europe has gone into an existential crisis in recent centuries, thanks to the Enlightenment, thanks to godless folks who propose that the state of nature is the ideal and civilization and laws and norms and taboos and all the rest, those are oppressive, repressive. We need to get rid of that. If we want to liberate people, we have to get rid of all that. But in the grand scheme of things, a few hundred years is not so long, even if it is a few hundred years that we have to contend with radical environmentalists and their oppression. We've seen their kind before, and we should not suppose that they will endure because God says that the wicked will not endure, and these people are wicked, so they won't endure. They're going to blow away like the chaff. By contrast, the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water who bears fruit in his season, and in everything he does, he prospers. By contrast, that's what Christians who follow after the Lord diligently, faithfully, have to look forward to in the long run. Our legacy will endure while the legacy of the wicked will blow away like so much chaff. And that's why I bring this to your attention. There were real people who were plundered and in some cases traded with, sure, but the trade goods were by and large the product of plundering even. So there were real people who were the rightful owners of these silver coins and this jewelry who were most likely raided by these Vikings and they didn't take their plunder with them when they died. These Vikings are not still around and they didn't enjoy their ill-begotten gain. They're dead. They're dead and buried and probably they have decomposed and just become part of the earth by now in the places where they lived. They died and then they were buried or they were burned and set off into the waters on funeral ships, funeral boats to be sent off to their afterlife as they were expecting it, but really eternal judgment. It's appointed for a man once to die and then comes the judgment. And for those who are not in Christ, the judgment will be being cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's why we should, while we have the chance, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, he is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead on the third day, and you will be saved. But speaking of cosmology, speaking of Christ, speaking of the second coming, consider with me Revelation 6. John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb, that is Jesus, opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked. And behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, 
and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Amen. That right there is my cosmology as a Christian. That is my eschatology as a Christian. That's how I believe the world comes to an end. That's what I'm expecting. That's why I'm not worried about fossil fuels destroying the planet. That's why I don't take seriously the predictions of the false prophets of the environmentalists. I don't take seriously their predictions when they say this or that horrible thing is going to happen to our coastlines and the cities and the houses on them in the next dozen years or the next 20 years or the next 100 years. I don't take them seriously because as Alex Epstein chronicles in The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, their predictions have been wrong for decades and they just keep moving the goalposts. They make catastrophic predictions about the end of the world, and those predictions consistently don't come true, and then they just make more predictions, and they keep pushing. They keep arguing their case. They keep trying to get more and more political power and more wealth, and they will not stop unless we tell them that's enough and no more, or unless Christ comes back, which they can't prevent. They can't stop Christ from returning and the final judgment. And this is one of those cases of if you can't beat him, join him. You should count the cost on the front end and consider who you're up against. He actually has the authority and the power to do what we read about in the book of Revelation, and he will do it. And that is the position of the Christian. The position of the Christian is not that we listen to false prophets prophesying doom and gloom, and then we give them everything we have, all of our wealth, all of our power, all of our liberty, give them our children too, to save us from what they're predicting. 
They don't have the power to do it. For one, they don't have the foreknowledge that they're claiming. So they're lying. They can say that that's science. It's not science. You don't know these things that you're so confidently stating. But for another thing, even if you were correct in what you're predicting, you don't have the power to stop the thing that you're predicting. And the science really, truly actually bears that out. But you don't want to have a discussion about the science unless the science, so-called, supports and affirms your activism to this point. If it doesn't, then we find that there's actually a spiritual reality motivating, driving, inspiring, animating your activism and your engagement in these discussions. And that spiritual force is what we as Christians have to be opposed to. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. We do wrestle against powers and principalities and powers and principalities are at work here, motivating the left. Uh, Ben Zeisloft wrote another piece that's worth your attention. April 22nd over at the Daily Wire again, Tucker Carlson calls for conservative paradigm shift in dealing with leftist evil. Tucker Carlson delivered a speech on Friday contending that the American political debate has moved beyond a contest between rival policy positions and is now driven by factions with fundamentally evil objectives. The veteran TV host and journalist whose Fox News show attracts millions of viewers every evening remarked at an event for the Heritage Foundation that fellow conservatives must swiftly adjust their approaches to the national conversation since some political forces desire to tear down the nation rather than engage in legitimate political dialogue. Quote, we write our papers and they write their papers and may the best papers win. I don't think that's what we're watching now at all. I don't think we're watching a debate on how to get to the best outcome. I think that's completely wrong, Carlson said. Quote, there is no way to assess, say, the transgenderist movement with that mindset. Policy papers don't account for it at all. If you have people who are saying, I have an idea, let's castrate the next generation, let's sexually mutilate children, I'm sorry, that's not a political debate. That has nothing to do with politics. If you're telling me, here's another quote, abortion is a positive good, what are you saying? Well, you're arguing for child sacrifice, he continued. Quote, when the Treasury Secretary stands up and says, you know what you can do to help the economy, get an abortion, well, that's an Aztec principle, actually, end quote. Another quote. And that's the kind of the point I'm making. None of this makes sense in conventional political terms, end quote. Quote, what you're watching is not a political movement. It's evil, end quote. And that's correct. And that's objectively true. And we find that borne out in God's word. We find that borne out. If this is the end times, then there are going to be even the elect, even the saints, if that's possible, being deceived by the Antichrist. If this is the end times, and I'm not saying that it is, a thousand years ago, as Tom Holland writes in The Forge of Christendom, a thousand years ago, Western Europe was just sure that the second coming was upon us. The events of Revelation were unfolding before their eyes with the Vikings coming down from the north, with Islam coming up from the south, strange weather, plagues, lots of supernatural activity, supposedly, reportedly, allegedly. Demonic things were happening. Evil was trying to take over. And it was not the end. That was not the end. And this might not be either. So we have to consider that possibility. But 
For those who say we are in the end times, then there is no other judgment to make of the radical left except to say that the radical left is exactly what you would expect to usher in and welcome the Antichrist that we read about in Revelation. The radical left with its globalism, its environmentalism, its love for abortion and transgenderism and homosexuality, its slanderous tendencies, its lust for power, its greed for unjust gain. The radical left is exactly what you would expect. And when you have people who purport to be, claim to be Christians on that side of the so-called debate, one, it's worth remembering that Jesus says, not everybody who says to him, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's also worth noting that even the elect will be deceived if that were possible. And we do not want to be deceived. We do not want to be confused about these things. Thomas Catanacci, Fox News, Biden admin preparing major crackdown on power plants that fuel nation's grid. Expected power plant rule is latest in President Biden's anti-fossil fuels agenda, Energy Industry Group tells Fox News Digital. The Biden administration is reportedly finalizing a proposal that would force fossil fuel fired power plants to substantially curb emissions or utilize costly carbon capture technology. The proposal, which will soon be released by the EPA, is expected to require coal and natural gas fired power plants to cut or capture the vast majority of their carbon dioxide emissions by 2040. The New York Times reported on Saturday, citing officials briefed on a draft of the plan. The regulation, if finalized, would represent the first ever federal action curbing power plant emissions. Quote, EPA cannot comment because the proposals are currently under interagency review. EPA spokesperson Maria Mikolos told Fox News Digital in a statement, quote, but we have been clear from the start that we will use all of our legally upheld tools grounded in decades old bipartisan laws to address dangerous air pollution and protect the air our children breathe today and for generations to come, end quote, Mikolos said. Now, what if the stated concern for the well-being of our children is about as trustworthy in the case of regulating power plants as it is in the case of gender-affirming care, so-called. The same folks who are saying they care so much about our children when it comes to keeping the lights on and us being able to fuel our motor vehicles, the same folks also crop up in state after state opposing legislation to protect children from being castrated or being given hysterectomies, being given double mastectomies, sometimes even in the state of Washington, for instance, being taken away from their parents if their parents oppose their children being transitioned to the opposite gender. Speaking personally, I don't trust the people who are claiming they want to protect our children for generations to come with regards to the environment, because I see how they relate to the topic of our children's sexuality, their physical health, their mental, emotional, spiritual health. I see all of that. And no, they do not have credibility. Any, any whatsoever. One more story from Fox News, just to, I guess, stick a finger in the eye of people who say, you sound like Fox News. Well, okay, fine. Here we go. If, I'm, if you're going to say I sound like Fox News anyways, I might as well share some Fox News stories, particularly if Fox News is reporting on these things. It doesn't mean that they're not true, by the way. Montana Republicans condemn hate-filled remarks by transgender rep Zoe Zephyr. Not public service. Montana legislator Zoe Zephyr said Republicans have blood on their hands. 
trying to ban so-called gender-affirming care in the state of Montana, banning transgender surgeries, which is to say gender mutilation, the removal of sex organs from children in the state of Montana. Zoe, so-called Zoe Zephyr, is a biological man who identifies as a woman. And here in the Fox News report as well, feminine pronouns are used and they are not appropriate to this legislator. This legislator is a biological man saying, I'm a woman, and you're giving away your legitimacy to oppose what he is pushing for when you affirm his pronouns, which are not she, her, because he is a male. He is a man. The fact that he's dressed up as a woman and has long hair and earrings and makeup, that does not change the fact that he is a man. He is a male. He should have never been elected to the legislature because he's lawless and has no fear of God. So what kind of laws are you going to get when you loop him in? Missoula, Missoula, Montana, my home state being Montana. This one is an especially odd story, but it really does bring us back to the question of whether you can trust anything that the left says at all on any subject, on any topic. When they lie about what they're doing to children, when they lie about their own gender, why would you trust them when we scale up to something as important as the economy of the entire world? And we scale up to our liberties on the macro, on a national level or an international level. Why would you trust them on anything whatsoever? They are liars on things as fundamental and basic as gender and sexuality. They lie. And it's not just theoretical. It's not just for the sake of argument, they literally want to sexualize your children. And the United Nations is on board with this, having recently re- reported or released a report or backed a group that released a report saying that countries around the world should decriminalize sex between adults and children. And this is exactly what Christians told you to expect in the US when the so called marriage equality debates were in full swing about a decade ago. You were told to expect that the next thing they would push for was sexualizing children. Bestiality would be normalized. Pedophilia would be normalized. Every form of sexual perversion would be normalized in the name of liberation, but it's not liberation. This is about as liberating as you being liberated from your physical body, as in death, because this is death. These lies lead to sin, and come from sinful hearts, which do not know God, do not fear God, do not love God, do not believe and trust in God. And they lead to death. These lies lead to death, and not just on an individual basis. These are the kinds of lies that lead to mass casualties and mass atrocities, like we have seen in the 20th century. In actual fact, in countries where this has been tried, the death toll was in the millions and tens of millions. Now scale it up to an international level and you will get billions of deaths. Not millions of deaths, but billions of deaths. And they're okay with that because, again, they have an anti-human philosophy. Now that brings us back to what I told you to expect at the top of this episode, which is, in, in short, I mean, it's it's me reading for you a review of the review that I wrote to goodreads.com for Alex Epstein's book, 
the moral case for fossil fuels. This is me responding to a review of a review of Epstein's book so that you do not think I'm straw manning the other side's perspective or position. Two, Garrett Mullet, quote, in the debate about clean versus unclean energy, he quotes me. So right from the jump, right from the jump, he's got an exception taken to my saying this is a debate. He takes exception to my even saying that this is a debate. He says, and I quote, the problem here is that there is no debate because the tragic flaw of fossil fuels, unclean energy source, is based on scientific evidence, all caps. You know that something is true when it's written in all caps. Fun fact. Very sciencey. Quote, the scientific evidence indicates that fossil fuels, when combusted, cause human-induced climate change due to them releasing the greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide. Runaway climate change, runaway greenhouse effect will render our planet uninhabitable. For an example of a planet suffering from runaway greenhouse effect, refer to the Earth's sister planet, Venus. Renewables like sun and wind do not release greenhouse gases when used. Therefore, they are clean energy. They are a clean energy source. Okay, so starting off, right? Starting off, and we're just going to take this one chunk at a time. He doesn't like, and this is uh, Stephen, by the way, Stephen Pletko from London, Ontario, Canada, eh? He refers to himself as an Ontario scholar. He has a science diploma. His bio reads, a science diploma, science degree in laboratory technology. He says, in addition, I have a science degree as well as a psychology degree. Both degrees have a healthy dose of philosophy. I also have three years of rehabilitation medicine. Looking at his favorite books on Goodreads. I see The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins is there. Uh, Also, The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Also, Atheism, The Case Against God by George H. Smith. Also, God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. You get the idea. He's got several other favorites listed. He is fairly well-read, it would seem, in terms of reading a lot of books and reading books by people he clearly agrees with and also books that are written by people he clearly does not agree with. It would seem, unless he's just saying he read them so he can rate them low. (laughs) But I really struck a nerve, it would seem, with my review of the moral case for fossil fuels. He really doesn't like that I even say this is a debate. Because to say that it's a debate would imply that you actually need to listen to your critics and that you need to be cross-examined. And why is that such a threatening idea to men like Stephen Pletko. Why is that such a threatening idea? If the science is so settled, then why do you object so strenuously to being cross-examined, to having somebody else state a counter-proposal or a counter-factual or a counter-example? The first to state his case, Proverbs tells us in the Old Testament, the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. When the left consistently wants to be the first and only to state their case, then we should interpret that as a great deal of insecurity on their part, that they don't believe their argument can hold up under scrutiny, which is to say that it's a paper tiger. But in all caps, he says there's no debate because we know based on scientific evidence that fossil fuels 
are an unclean energy source. So he affirms that I characterize the position of the radical environmentalists as such. He affirms that. He doesn't dispute that. He agrees. Yes, we regard fossil fuels as unclean energy. And then he goes on to say that the scientific evidence indicates that fossil fuels, when combusted, cause human-induced climate change due to the release of greenhouse gases. What's interesting is if you actually read Alex Epstein's book, he agrees with that. He doesn't dispute that so-called greenhouse gases are released. What he would say, what I would agree with from what I've read, from what I've studied of this, the question is not whether there's any impact on the environment. The question is whether the impact on the environment is harmful. That is the question. Also, if you would say that a very, very, very small rise in global temperatures is bad, what amount of increase in the world's temperature would be okay with you? Or is any increase whatsoever in global temperatures catastrophic? Any, any whatsoever. Is this planet so fragile that any impact at all by humans is disastrous? And how do you arrive at, on the one hand, reading Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris saying that man is so insignificant, man in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter at all, totally inconsequential, which purports to be a humble position to take. It's actually an extremely arrogant position to take because you're contradicting God who said, no, I made man in my image. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, which we'll get into as we go on farther. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it belong to God. And God is the one who upholds and sustains and will ultimately bring judgment and will create a new heavens and a new earth after this one is destroyed. But going back to Stephen Pletko, he says, the scientific evidence indicates fossil fuels, when combusted, cause human-induced climate change. The big question is, how much as a share of the whole of climate change, which has been happening According to even the secular scientists, it's been happening that our climate changes since long before they believe humans even existed, much less we're extracting oil and natural gas and coal and all the rest. Climate has been changing forever due to lots of factors. And the biggest factors in climate change, even by their own admission, are not at all due to human activity, not at all caused by human beings building economies, individual or collective economies. But Stephen Pletko gives the example of Venus. Venus, being Earth's sister planet, is not the same distance from the sun. Also, how did Venus come to have a runaway greenhouse effect, as you are calling it? Were there humans on Venus who were burning fossil fuels? Or if you would say, no, there's no evidence of that whatsoever, would you have to admit that actually therein lies a great example of exactly what I'm saying, which is that these things are driven by dynamics and mechanics and fundamentals that are not human caused. We didn't put Venus the distance that it is from the sun, and we did not compose the atmosphere of Venus, and we did not cause this runaway greenhouse effect on Venus, as Stephen Pletko is describing it. So that would seem to undermine his argument that 
What happened on Venus is going to happen here. What are you even talking about? There are no people on Venus. To our knowledge, there were never people on Venus. So what's your point? It would seem like you're actually making my point. Also, what is this anthropomorphic language employed about a planet suffering? Here we see planets being described as being able to feel. So you say, Venus is suffering. That implies that Venus is a person. But then also that would be of a piece with a more neo-pagan attitude towards Earth and describing Earth as our mother. There is a kind of deification here of the creation. Instead of worshiping God as creator, you're exchanging the truth for a lie and your foolish heart is darkened thereby. This becomes unreasonable. It becomes incapable of being reasoned with, actually, more to the point. Now, he says, he makes a claim here, which is demonstrably false, actually, that renewables like sun and wind do not release greenhouse gases when used. Therefore, they are a clean energy source. As Alex Epstein points out in his book, and as is self-evident, even just with a little bit of research, you will know this, that hydro and solar and wind power are costly, and they do have an environmental impact. And to create a wind turbine or a hydroelectric power plant or solar panels requires that you emit carbon. There's just no getting around it. There's no getting around the amount of carbon that goes into making those things. And then the question becomes, are you getting as much benefit out of it as you are putting energy into these things? That's the big question. Cost, benefit. And your claim is because the electricity is generated by solar activity, the wind blowing, water moving, this is clean energy because the sun and the wind and the water are ostensibly clean. But what I think you actually mean is something more metaphysical, something more fundamental, that those things are clean if they haven't been contaminated or corrupted by man, but then What you're actually calling for is the abolition of electricity generation entirely if you say you want zero impact on the environment. There is an environmental impact to mining the materials that go into batteries for storage of electricity generated by these sources. Also, the photovoltaics do not come from the sun. They collect the energy from the sun's rays. Those photovoltaics have to be harvested from the earth and then refined. They have to be transported, extracted, transported, refined, and then sold, and then transported again, and then installed, and then maintained. And all of that has an environmental impact. And so either you don't know or you're not telling the truth about the environmental impact of your so-called renewables. Next, he takes issue with my using the term anti-human He says, this is your hero Epstein's derogatory term for anybody that accepts the scientific evidence for human-induced climate change. Since he does not accept evidence, especially scientific evidence, Epstein is an irrational person. Okay, now let's just take a step back. Let's think about this. One, I never said Epstein is my hero, but I would say what he's doing is heroic. So I'll let that one slide. A derogatory term for anybody that accepts the scientific evidence. Now, that's um, playing some games with language here. And that's not being genuine. And that's not really a good faith claim. 
Epstein is not saying, let's ignore the scientific evidence. He's saying, actually, let's consider the totality of the scientific evidence and let's have a scientific debate about what the preponderance of the evidence actually would lead us to conclude and therefore prescribe and therefore do. Epstein is not an irrational person. He accepts the evidence, all of the evidence that you're talking about, he has at his disposal. So do I. We have all the same evidence. And there's more besides that is being factored in. What we don't accept as evidence is a computer model or a foundational presupposition that is more metaphysical and that is a sign of a competing cosmology that is not scientific. You can claim that it's science. That doesn't make it science any more than a man putting on a dress and makeup, growing his hair out long, wearing earrings, is therefore a woman. You can claim that it's science just like he's claiming that he's a woman. It doesn't make it so. The rational person would actually consider all the evidence and more besides that you on that side of the debate, which is a debate, or if it's not, then it's just going to be war. And we can talk about this. We can talk this out and be reasonable, uh, or we can just fight because this is an existential crisis actually. And I, I suspect that we're going to have to just have a fight, but I want to, I want to be persuasive. I want it to be a dialogue. I want it to be something where we can discuss it and you can be persuaded of the truth, which is not the position you're holding right now. It is an anti-human prescription that the radical environmentalists ultimately are driving at and motivated by. It is an anti-human philosophy and it's a godless philosophy, which is actually borne out by when I navigate my way over to your Goodreads profile and I see your favorite books, The Case Against God, The End of Faith, The God Delusion, God is Not Great. All of these are of a piece with your radical environmentalist positions taken. Not surprisingly. I am not surprised. Continuing on. Quote, when we consider honestly the case Mr. Epstein lays out, he's quoting me here, and then here is the response from Stephen Pletko. In the case that Epstein lays out, he denies human-induced climate change, thus contradicting the scientific evidence, and so establishing himself to be an irrational person. Therefore, any rational person would honestly disregard his case. Now you're just engaging in some circular reasoning here. This is begging the question. This is you embedding the conclusion in the premise of your argument and then saying, aha, see, you don't accept that? You're irrational. No, 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 no. The rational person who has some chutzpah and some sense here is going to reject your argument because your argument is not made in good faith and it's not sound. Again, Epstein doesn't deny that humans have some kind of an influence on the environment or that they move the needle a little bit with regards to climate change. What he disputes and disagrees with, and I also disagree with this, what he disputes and I dispute is that man's activity, man's economic activity, man's fulfillment of the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it is a primary significant driver of climate change and that the results thereof are negative and even catastrophic. That's what's being denied. That's what's being rejected because the evidence doesn't bear that out, actually. The scientific evidence is twisted and manipulated to try and make a case, which amounts to a power grab. And insofar as that's corrupt and that's evil, yes, I reject that. 
No, I won't be silent in the face of that. Continuing on, he objects to my using the term morally. That's all he quotes. It's just my use of the word morally. And then he continues in response. After reading this outdated book that was published in 2014, it's obvious that Epstein is the most immoral person on the planet. Wow. Hyperbolic much? Seems like quite the statement. I don't know if you can justify that. Uh, Also, by the way, okay, (laughs) let's just examine. Let's examine if we can whether this is a consistent position to take. Stephen Pletko says, the moral case for fossil fuels is outdated because it was published in 2014. And yet, let's survey his favorite books on Goodreads. Atheism, The Case Against God by George H. Smith. First published September 1st, 1979. Is that book outdated? It must be even more outdated than The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. How about The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason by Sam Harris? Goodreads says that was first published August 11th, 2004, so a full decade before The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Is that book terribly outdated? Or how about Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, first published October 1st, 2006? Hmm? Is that one outdated? Another book that's older than The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels that is in your favorites list. God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, Christopher Hitchens, First published January 1st, 2007. I could go on, but I think that's enough to establish that it's a silly, frivolous argument against Epstein's book that it was published in 2014. That's a silly, frivolous argument that I don't have to take seriously. And I'm not going to because it's nonsense and inconsistent. If you actually believe that, you wouldn't have these books on atheism in your favorites list like you do, but you do. The claim that Epstein is the most immoral person on the planet, ah, that's just plain silly. That's just plain silly. How can Epstein saying, I'm concerned about the effect on billions of men, women, and children, the negative effect on their ability to feed themselves, clothe themselves, house themselves, educate themselves, get adequate health care, a good education, I'm concerned about their political freedom if the claims inherent to environmentalism win the day. How can that be indicative of the most immoral person on the planet? That is the moral case for fossil fuels, that we must oppose radical environmentalism and its rejection of fossil fuels because we want to protect men, women, and children around the planet from starvation, exposure, homelessness, joblessness, privation, dying of entirely preventable curable diseases. That is not the mark of an immoral person, much less the most immoral person on the planet. But you saying that it is indicative tells me where your priorities are at. Your priorities are not at all concerned with human suffering or human flourishing. Your priorities are saving the planet from any impact by humans whatsoever. So not only are you anti-God, you're an atheist, but you're also anti-human, as Epstein points out, because you completely sidestep all of his arguments to do with human flourishing. Now, he quotes me, oil, natural gas, and coal are a net good. 
His response, no, this does not follow once you know the facts. It's impossible for fossil fuels in the form of oil, natural gas, and coal to be a net good because when combusted, they release the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide. Now you're repeating yourself. It is this excess carbon dioxide that causes human-induced climate change. You're repeating yourself. Runaway climate change, runaway greenhouse gas effect will render our planet uninhabitable. Thus, fossil fuels are an inferior energy source and always will be. But then you have played some clever tricks here and some sleight of hand is caught by me when you say runaway climate change, runaway greenhouse effect. The scientific evidence should prove whether we have runaway climate change and greenhouse effect before you make the claim that this is going to render our planet uninhabitable. You have to establish that the evidence supports the claim that you're making, not just say it's hypothetically possible. Therefore, we need to completely stop producing oil, gas, and coal or transporting it or refining it or using it for fuel, using it for electricity generation. You can't put the burden of proof on us to prove that it won't or that it isn't or that it doesn't. The burden of proof is on you to prove that it is and it will and it does right now. And therefore, we need to abolish it and demonize anybody who objects. He also objects to my saying a gift from God. He doesn't like that. He does not like, Stephen Pletko does not like my referring to fossil fuels as a gift from God. His response, are you actually saying that fossil fuels, which can cause runaway climate change, runaway greenhouse effect, and ultimately an uninhabitable planet are a gift from God? Sure to answer, yes. Yes, I am saying that. Yes, I am saying that. As Epstein would say, the use-abuse fallacy is at the center of your claim, your complaint. Next up, he quotes me in my reference to human flourishing, and he asks the question, how you can have human flourishing on an uninhabitable planet, all caps, uninhabitable for emphasis. And my answer to that is very simple. We do not live on an uninhabitable planet. We live on a habitable planet. And how can you have human flourishing if your goal for this habitable planet is to have zero human impact on the environment? That's your goal. Your net zero is not just zero carbon emissions. Your goal is to have people having no influence, no impact, leaving no mark, no trace on the earth. I think you have a harder question to answer than I do because my worldview is that God not just created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. He didn't just He didn't just make man in his image after his likeness, male and female, and say, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He didn't just sustain the planet and our race for the last several thousand years. He also is still sustaining it. He also will continue sustaining it until the last day, until the final judgment. And then after that, judgment comes and we see a new heavens and a new earth for the saints, for those who are in Christ. Next up, he quotes me, Stephen Pletko does, those who insist that fossil fuels need to be purged from portfolios. Yes, I said that. What will he find fault with? There, I wonder. Well, he says, investment counselors and other rational people recommend this because leading economists have predicted the collapse of the fossil fuel industry by circa 2028. Based on what? 
Based on what? Based on environmentalist activism, taking the public perception of fossil fuels, turning that into election victories around the world, leveraging influence in supranational non-governmental organizations like the WEF, for instance, and then demanding divestment from fossil fuels. So if you're talking about the collapse of the fossil fuel industry as being caused by those influences, and then you cite (laughs) the upcoming collapse as the reason why we're being told to divest from fossil fuels, I say once again, You're engaged in circular reasoning that is highly illogical, not compelling, and ultimately unconvincing. But he continues, he says, this prediction is based on surprisingly simple economic principles and not on any sorts of convoluted arguments or positions. That's just not true. That's just not true. The simple economic principle is supply and demand, cost benefit. That's the simple economic principle here is more value returned on your investment for the amount that you had to invest in it. And if it's if it's so self-evidently true that fossil fuels don't deliver that, then why do you have to push the abolition of fossil fuels from these regulatory bodies, from these NGOs, from these environmentalist groups, from the media? Why do you have to push so hard? If it's so simple, if it's so self-evident, why do you have to pressure people who are acting in what they perceive to be their self-interest and in their community's best interest and in the world's best interest, why do you have to threaten them so hard? Why do you have to malign their character so badly? If it's so simple, so obvious that we need to divest from fossil fuel industry stocks, projects, initiatives. He quotes me again, environmentalists want to restore the planet to a state of nature where humankind does not plant, harvest, transport, refine, manufacture, or consume anything whatsoever. Be it known, he here substitutes my use of the term mankind. (laughs) That's what I wrote in the original. I said mankind, and he changed it in his quoting of me to humankind. Now you realize that man is still right in the center of humankind, right? Just like mankind contains a root word, man, so does humankind contain that root word, man. So you're not really, you're not doing anything to change my wording, except wasting your time. You're wasting your time and you are also saying something about yourself, sir, that you have uh, a problem with humanity being represented by men. And here again, we find something that's very consistent. It's very consistent with the rest of what I know so far about your worldview, that you are an atheist. Your favorite books are by atheists who are evangelical, actually, interestingly enough, evangelical in their preaching of atheism. Curious that Tom Holland, again, would have something to say about that curious feature of a very Christian (laughs) in Uh, form, if not in substance, type of atheism that you are enamored by, why be evangelical if everything is just meaningless? If you're such a nihilist and you think that people should just be not on the planet, is it perhaps because for the same reason you 
really oppose fossil fuels. You also oppose Christian faith because both likely to human flourishing in the long run, a fulfillment of not just the dominion mandate, but also the great commission. And there's an anti-human. I'll, I'll repeat it because I believe Alex Epstein is right here. There's a consistently anti-human bend to your view of the world and man's place in it. Man's place in it. The Christian would say, biblically, families and the communities that families belong to and the nations that communities belong to are represented by men because men are made to be the head. How can it be that a husband and wife have a situation in their home where the man is the head of his wife, but then the wife is the head of a whole country of men. It just doesn't work. So my my position on this is to continue using mankind. Now I reject your edit suggestion on using humankind instead, substituting humankind. No, thank you. But he responds, no, your hero Epstein is wrong again, not surprisingly. Environmentalists and other rational people want to ensure that the planet does not become so bad as to become uninhabitable. Uh, but that's not true. I, you know, my question, sir, would be, did you, did you actually even read uh, Epstein's book? Did you actually read Epstein's book where he quotes leading philosophers for the environmentalist movement where the subject is mankind and man's relationship to his environment? Now, you can say you just want to ensure that the planet does not become so bad as to become uninhabitable. Maybe that's your position. Maybe that is your position and you are not accurately represented in the mainstay of what environmentalists are for. But this is not my imagination. It's not Alex Epstein's imagination that a lot of the same folks who are pushing for net zero, zero carbon emissions, carbon neutral futures, all of us reducing our carbon footprint, those same people are very often again and again saying that it's not enough to eliminate fossil fuels. They also point to raising livestock or even crops like rice. And they say a huge amount of global emissions of this or that come from ag. A whole lot of water consumption is due to agriculture, man growing food. And therefore, what? Therefore, what? How does it work if you start doing the same thing to food that you are doing at a global scale with regards to fossil fuels? And now we don't have electricity or the ability to transport ourselves unless we have an electric vehicle and solar panels. And all of a sudden, too, we don't have food because the same people who have taken control of the economy by taking control of electricity and fuel for the transportation sector next move on to the food supply. And then there's just not enough food for everybody. Sorry, there's just not enough food. And we can't transport it anyway, so it's all the same. We might as well stop growing it if you can't transport it, but there's just not enough food for everybody. What happens next? I'll give you a minute, but if you come up with any other answer, then billions of people starve to death, then I'm going to tell you to go back to the drawing board. This is an anti-human philosophy. I'll admit plenty of the people who are supportive of it 
just want purpose and belonging. And maybe they like some of the other aspects of the general move of the left. They like the sexual liberation. They like the atheism. They like not having to go to church (laughs) as they see that boring and restrictive and a nuisance. But some of the people who are leading this, they know exactly what they're up to. They know exactly what they really want as an end goal. And if you read them in their own words, like Epstein has, and then he relays to us in his book, you read them in their own words and you realize these folks line up with William Vogt. Charles C. Mann has this crowd accurately described and characterized. William Vogt went around the world to third world nations, encouraging them not to increase the yield of their dry land, not to look for more productive strains of this or that grain crop to grow so they could feed their people. He went around the world telling governments to get their people to stop making babies, give the women hysterectomies, whether they want them or not, give the men vasectomies, whether they want them or not, start requiring compulsory abortions. If people go over their one child, like in China, you can say that's not what you intend, but if that's the effect and you're warned on the front end and you keep on going anyways, well then, how can you defend against the charge that this is anti-human? I don't think you can. And I don't think that's rational to protect the planet along these lines for these reasons Being able to come up with some tortured hypothetical that a computer model will tell you is correct when you feed it just the right information to get the conclusion you want, that does not justify seizing everyone's wealth and political power and trampling on their rights. It does not justify what you are going to do to people in the name of saving them. This is of a piece with the mentality that gave us the COVID lockdowns. Shut everybody in their homes, and then if they want to get out, even just with their family at the park, arrest them, call the cops on them and arrest them. Even if nobody's around, they're just out there getting fresh air and sunshine, vitamin D, exercise. Nothing could be better for their immune system than what they're doing, but they're not obeying the government. So they must clearly want people to die. And so we should want them to die. You see how that escalates? We saw this very recently in real time. Next, you say people have to wear masks. And if they double or triple mask, who cares if they get Ampetigo, or some kind of weird respiratory condition. Who cares if it provides anonymity to criminals? Who cares if it's dehumanizing and extraordinarily depressing and it delays cognitive development for children? Who cares? We're protecting people from COVID. That was another subtle science, trust the experts moment. And here you are with another, here you are with this one, and we're supposed to believe you? When the same crowd is pushing the same kind of nonsense, but even worse this time, we're not talking about perpetual lockdown. We're talking about starving billions of people to death, cutting off their access to electricity, forbidding them from driving internal combustion engine vehicles. This is deadly serious. And you can't tell me, you can't tell me to believe you when you say, oh no, we're pro-human. No, you want the earth to be habitable for a certain kind of people who share your ideology. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new about what you actually really want, which is clear as day from the rest of your positions taken and for them from 
your disregard for the warnings, the very, very clear, very reasonable warnings about what the consequences, unintended or intended, it doesn't matter, of these initiatives will be. Continuing on, I say, I say, he quotes me, the earth is the Lord's. He takes exception to that, asking the question, would the Lord want his planet ruined by fossil fuels? Would the Lord want his planet ruined by fossil fuels? And this is a tricky sidestep question because instead of saying, no, it isn't, I say the earth is the Lord's and he says, no, the earth isn't the Lord's. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, okay, accepting your premise, would the Lord want his planet ruined by fossil fuels? And here would be my answer. You haven't proven that using fossil fuels to this point will ruin the planet. So it's an irrelevant question. Your question is an irrelevant one. It's like the question of when are you going to stop beating your wife? Or have you stopped beating your wife yet? It's a manipulative question. I don't accept your premise that this is a valid concern. God himself, if God not only owns the earth, it belongs to God, the earth belongs to God, and all who dwell in it, the fullness thereof, and all those who dwell in the world all belong to God, rightfully. That means also, too, that the oil, the gas, and the coal were put there in the earth by God. Or else, who created the oil, the gas, and the coal? Who created these things? And let me ask you this as well. When we read that God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, as I, a Christian, read in the Bible and believe, when we read that, tell me this, how could all things not include the things that happen to be coal, oil, natural gas? If God works all things to the good, wouldn't all things include fossil fuels? That he would work fossil fuels to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Also, he sends his reins on the just and the unjust. So even if you're not a believer, even if you don't love God, even if you don't believe in God, there's still a blessing for you. You're still enjoying a blessing and a benefit. I guarantee you the smartphone, tablet, laptop, desktop, you are reviewing my review on Mr. Pletko was made out of a lot of petroleum products. The electricity that you are using to keep that computer on probably, probably comes from petroleum products. So you're still deriving a benefit from the fact that God put these things in the earth. The saints are definitely deriving a benefit. So God has a good purpose for these things. And the evidence is not there to justify your question. Would the Lord want his planet ruined by fossil fuels? These things have a good purpose. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. He has an orderly purpose for them. He has a good purpose for having put them in the earth. It doesn't mean that these things can't be abused. Like everything else that God has made, everything can be abused. If we're wicked and sinful, selfish, foolish, uncareful, negligent, Sure, but by God's grace, all of these things can have a good purpose and be put to a good use as well. Otherwise, why did God make them? Riddle me that. And if you don't believe that God made them, who do you believe made them? 
Who else was going around creating? Nobody. No one else is described as being a creator God in the Bible. Only God, only Yahweh God. Continuing on, he takes exception to my saying, the world and all who live in it. He says a very similar thing to what he said in response to the previous thing. He asks, would the Lord want his world to become uninhabitable? And the answer to this question is, as with the first, this is an invalid question because what you're trying to imply is that the world will become uninhabitable if we continue using fossil fuels. And the evidence is not there to support that. The evidence is not there to support you implying that, insinuating that, much less directly stating it. And actually, Alex Epstein draws on this as well in his book, which, again, I question whether you actually read it. Lastly, his last quote that he took exception to from my review, the seas and established it on the waters. So his question is, would the Lord want his seas and waters to be continued to be polluted by fossil fuels? And this question... This question is a bit different, right? It's different than the previous two. So one, I reject his suggestion that the planet is being ruined or will be ruined by fossil fuels. I reject that. Two, I reject the suggestion that this world will become uninhabitable due to using fossil fuels. But this next question, he goes he goes in a different direction. He says, would the Lord want to seas and waters to continue to be polluted by fossil fuels? And here's the simple fact. It is possible for our seas and waters to be polluted by fossil fuels. That's true. That's valid. That's a valid concern. And I would say, quite simply, I don't believe so. And I say this as somebody who's worked in oil and gas for now 11 years. I don't believe that God wants us to be careless with these materials, with these resources that he has given to us. I don't believe he would want us to be careless. And I derive that principle from several relevant passages that have to do with law and justice and precautions and procedures in the Old Testament. For instance, there is law in the Pentateuch concerning if you're building a house with a second floor or a second story, and you're going to make it possible for people to go out on your rooftop. And if you don't build a railing around the outside of the perimeter of this roof where people can go up and stand on top, if you don't build a railing that is sufficient and people fall from the rooftop and die, you are liable. You are guilty of the consequences for your negligent actions. You were warned and you didn't do your due diligence. That person's blood is on your hands. So also, I would say it's fair when we become knowledgeable of the safeguards that are needed in the oil and gas industry or any industry for that matter, if we become aware that due diligence is needed and we don't do the due diligence, we don't do the good that we know we ought to do, it is a sin and God does not desire that and it is an injustice and it is a wicked thing. And therefore, believing that as I do, I'm very diligent in the work that I do in oil and gas. I want every connection to be tight. I want everything to be specced correctly to the proper rating, proper classification, in the proper application. I want things to be planned out and put in the proper place by the proper people. I want them to be properly configured and tested. And I want there to be documentation saying these things have been tested. And we know that they work. 
I want to sit down with engineers and operations and discuss, have we covered mitigation of the most costly potential accidents that could arise if the equipment malfunctions or there's an upset in the process or there's some kind of an error on the part of personnel or there's sabotage, an effort at sabotage by a member of the radical environmentalist contingent in society. I want it all to be done with the utmost diligence so that we don't have any pollution in our waterways or on the land. And I'm okay with reasonable efforts put forth to reduce air pollution. But here's the thing. The earth is less and less polluted when Americans, for instance, produce oil and gas and coal and Americans export our techniques and technologies to other countries, when we export our value for human life, thanks to Christianity, the world is a cleaner and cleaner place when we do this in the proper way, in the proper order, promoting human flourishing, not throwing out babies with bathwater. Oh, we have to save the planet and make sure it's habitable for generations to come. How are you going to do it? We're going to make it uninhabitable right now by destroying the global economy, by destroying national economies, by promoting social justice, by enacting communism. Huh, really? You think that'll work? Oh yeah, I'm sure of it. Super sciencey. There's a whole lot that the Lord wants and has communicated in his work. And it's not just, it's actually not even primarily first and foremost to do with how we treat the world. It's first and foremost, God's concern, how we treat each other, how we relate to him. And the problem with radical environmentalism is it only seems to care about what we do with the environment to the exclusion of caring how we treat each other and how we relate to God. And that's a major problem. That's not a minor problem. That's a major problem because it collapses the creature-creator distinction. It also collapses the distinction between man made in God's image and the rest of God's creation, which is to say It kicks against the goad as far as God's authority to say man's proper place is filling the earth and subduing it, being fruitful and multiplying. Subduing the earth, exercising dominion over the animals, over the land, over the waters, over the whole of creation that we're able to access. Exercising dominion is what we were put here to do. Reflecting God's image, his character and his goodness his attributes, his wisdom, his creativity, his love, his kindness, his faithfulness. All of that is what we were put here to do and to spread out all over the earth doing it in relationship with one another, in harmony, in peace with one another. But you don't get that peace by listening to the Greta Thunbergs or the Klaus Schwabs or the Al Gores or the Joe Bidens. You don't get there by listening to these people. They don't know God. I would love it if they did. We should pray for them that they would come to know God, but you're not going to get to know God favoriting the God delusion or God is not great or any of the other new atheist works. And so all I can give you is a stern warning and I can give you an apologetic. I can give you a reason for the hope that lies within me with gentleness and respect. I can also say in a very matter of fact way, What you are endeavoring to do 
is already hurting people. It's going to hurt still more people. I think if this is allowed to continue, maybe God allows it to continue because he is going to work these things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even the malice, even the resentment, even the mass murder of human beings. God will still work all that to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he will get representation in this generation. He will. I guarantee it because he has guaranteed it by his past actions and the fact that his purposes are unchangeable. The character of his purposes doesn't just not change. It's impossible for the character of his purposes to change because it's impossible for his character to change. So in closing, in closing, I'll just leave you with this. This is my livelihood. This is what I do for a living. I am not wealthy, but how I got from dependence on the government, which was awful and depressing and demoralizing and not sufficient, how I got from that to being able to buy our first home, buy an adequate vehicle, be a help to my friends and family. How I got there was working in oil and gas, getting plugged into the Bakken oil boom in 2012, moving my family to Colorado in 2019, The Democrats have tried very hard to ruin my industry in this country, and it's very anti-American as well as anti-human. It is not born of God's word. It is not born of good theology. It is not born of biblical justice, their initiatives and their agenda. And so I call for people to repent of it because this is wicked. It's wicked. It's sinful. These are things that God hates. expresses that he hates these things in his word. I call for people to repent of these things, and I hope that they will. And I also call for Christians to think rightly about these things so that we are good stewards of the authority that's been entrusted to us. If Romans 13 tells us that no authority exists among men except that which is instituted by God, then that would have to surely mean as well, if we have some authority in our own political system, in our own American system, If we have some authority, then that authority has been entrusted to us for a good purpose. Will we do the good that we know we ought to do politically? If we will, I say we will vote for people to be our representatives in the legislative, executive, and judicial branches who will remove activists like Joe Biden is promoting and empowering and giving a mandate to, giving a broad mandate to to pursue so-called environmental justice. This is no new thing under the sun. It cannot succeed. So the quicker we put the kibosh to it, the more lives we will save, the more people we will relieve the suffering of. I don't want environmental justice, so-called. I want God's justice. I want biblical justice. And if I can't enact it myself, if I'm never put in a position to do that, and it's not to say I couldn't or wouldn't be, If somebody said, hey, Garrett, you should really run for office, and I run for office, and I win, and I'm in a position of governmental authority, well, then God surely intended for me to use it to honor him, not to dishonor him, not to reward those who do evil and punish those who do what is good, but to reward those who do what is good, like providing for their families, and to punish those who do evil, like, for instance, people who write books and make movies called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, for instance. But Barring that, I'm not looking for repaying vengeance for vengeance. And yet I know that there's a God in heaven who will see vengeance done because vengeance is his, he says. We're also told to leave it to the wrath of God. And so 
I trust that God's wrath will be poured out on all wickedness and evil doing. And however short my hand is, God's is not short. His arm is not short. His reach is not short. And I trust that he will bless his saints. He will provide for us. He will protect us. But I also trust that we're given his word. We're given the oracles of life for a purpose. And that purpose is not to hide our lamp under a bushel, not to bury our talents in a field. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. Again, I'll say, do check out Alex Epstein's book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I see that he's got another book out. I want to read that one too. And if and when I do, Lord willing, maybe Steve Pletko will leave a review of that review too. And we'll return. I will share a link, Steve, if you have listened this far. I mean, you no ill will, and I really don't mean any disrespect. I do think you're badly mistaken on these things. And I wish that men like you, who are uh, well-read, it would seem, there's a lot of books you've got under your belt on Goodreads. I wish that men like you would find your purpose and belonging in Christ. That's what I would encourage you to, is find your purpose and belonging in Christ. And there's life there. There's life Eternally, yes, absolutely. Also life right now to be enjoyed in fellowship with God and his people. I would call you to that. I would invite you to that. I mean, you know, ill will. I think you're badly mistaken on these things, but you can be made right. And that would be my hope for you. So as I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.